Thank you. I invite you to turn with me in your copy of the Holy Scripture to Isaiah chapter number 6. Isaiah chapter number 6. It is in his classic book, The Knowledge of the Holy, that A.W. Tozer has written this. He says, the heaviest obligation lying upon the Christian church today is to purify and elevate her concept of God. He writes, we do the greatest service to the next generation of Christians by passing on to them undimmed and undiminished that noble concept of God. Now, of course, that concept of God is what we call our view of God, our understanding of the person and the character of God as revealed in the Scripture. And if you had to describe the person and the character of God as described in the Scripture, you would begin with the matter of holiness. The Bible says that God is holy. The Bible says that God's name is holy. God's word is holy. God's law is holy. God's promises are holy. God's works are holy. God's ways are holy. God's wrath is holy. God and everything about God is holy. But of course, we must ask what we mean by the fact that God is holy. To say that God is holy means more than God does not sin. To say that God is holy means more than that God is morally pure. This evening I submit to you that God's holiness is all of the separateness that exists between the creator and the creature. God's holiness is the distance, the difference between God's deity and man's humanity. So Isaiah 11 verse number 9 says, I am God and not man the Holy One among you, and in response, we as the creation, the creatures, as mankind, we can only say, who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glory, working wonders. So for this reason, some theologians don't classify holiness as one of God's attributes, but rather his primary attribute. God in his essence is holy. So this evening, we ask, okay then, but what's the point? What relevance does the holiness of God have to the matter of evangelism or the matter of worldwide global missions? What relevance does the holiness of God have to, to my heart for the harvest? And this evening, I would submit to you that the holiness of God is what drives us to take the gospel to the nations. Now... I made the very same claim yesterday about the worship of God. I declared that the worship of God is what compels us to tell the nations, what is it about God, however, that compels us to worship him in the first place? And I would say to you, it is his holiness. And so this evening, as a companion message to yesterday's message, I present the case for the holiness of God in missions. The worship of God in missions yesterday because of the holiness of God this evening. Isaiah chapter 6 is open before you. It's a familiar passage. Follow as I begin reading in verse number 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above it stood seraphim. Each one had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. 
And one cried to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the posts of the door were shaken by the voice of him who cried out, and the house was filled with smoke. We don't have time to explore all of the the symbolic representations of Isaiah's vision here, but let me assure you, it was awesome in a frightening way, like something we have never seen. Can you imagine God splitting open the sky and showing you his throne room? God's throne was high and lifted up, illustrating the preeminence and, and transcendence above his creation, and God was attended by the heavenly beings who surrounded him, worshiping him, saying, holy, holy, holy. Some believe that the threefold repetition of holy there was for the triune Godhead, like the hymn that we sing, holy, 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 God in three persons, blessed Trinity. And I believe the threefold repetition there was because there's nothing else to say when you're in the presence of God. In fact, if we were to turn to Revelation 4, the Bible tells us that the heavenly beings do not rest day or night saying, holy, holy, Holy Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And there the the posts of the door were shaking. The room was filled with smoke. Can you imagine? I would offer you, by way of outline, number one from the text, Isaiah was terrified when he saw God reigning. Number one, Isaiah was terrified when he saw God reigning. But why would Isaiah be terrified by what he saw? Remember, it was the children of Israel who stood there at the foot of Mount Sinai and heard the thunderings and saw the the flashing of the lightning upon the mountain because of the presence of God. And they cried to Moses, and the children of Israel said, You speak with us and we will hear. But don't let God speak with us lest we die. And the the children of Israel stood afar off and and they trembled, the Bible says in Exodus 20. And it's not that Isaiah was excited to meet a celebrity. It wasn't that Isaiah was respectful when approaching an authority. It was that Isaiah saw God sitting on his throne. And I believe that Isaiah was terrified, rightly terrified, when he saw God reigning. I would also suggest, number two, Isaiah was horrified when he felt himself ruined. He was terrified when he saw God reigning. He was horrified when he felt himself ruined. And because of the holiness of God, Isaiah sensed his full depravity. Look at verse number five. So I said, woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Isaiah said that he was undone. It can be translated as destroyed or cut off or lost. I I choose the the, the word here that the New American Standard uses, ruined. And here in this moment, Isaiah saw the incredible separation between God's holiness and his sinfulness. And that separation was so great that he could not imagine the possibility of a relationship with God because of that great divide. In fact, later in this very book, Isaiah would declare to the people of Judah, your sins have separated between you and your God. That's man's problem. Man's sin has separated man from a holy God. But to add some significance here to what Isaiah says in chapter 6, verse number 5, I want to go back to chapter 5. 
where Isaiah issued six woes upon the nation of Judah for their sin. So turn the page back to chapter 5 and allow us to capture the context for a moment. Follow me with here in this chapter 5, verse number 8. You'll see a pattern that, that forms. Verse 8, woe to those who join house to house They add field to field till there is no place where they may dwell alone in the midst of the land. That's a woe to the materialists. And this is talking about the greedy, unethical real estate dealings of the people of Judah. They were breaking some very specific rules of the Mosaic law about land ownership. Look at verse 11. Woe to those who rise early in the morning that they may follow intoxicating or strong drink who continue until night till wine inflames them. Woe to the drunkards. Look at verse 18, chapter 5, verse, verse number 18. Woe to those who draw iniquity with cords of vanity and sin as if it were a cart rope. That's woe to the doubters and the mockers of God. Verse number 19, they say, let him make speed and hasten his work that we may see it. And let the counsel of the Holy One of Israel draw near and come that we may know it. There's, there, there's just mocking God. Verse number 20. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil. Who put darkness for light and light for darkness. Who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to, to those who are so perverted in their thinking. They have it all backwards, inside out, upside down. Verse 21. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and prudent in their own sight. Woe to the conceited ones. Of course, in Proverbs 3, verse number 7, Solomon said, don't be wise in your own eyes. Wisdom is not sourced in us, but in God. Verse 22, woe to, the, to men mighty at drinking wine. Woe to men valiant for mixing intoxicating drink. Woe to the drunkard. It's interesting here that twice he, he issues a woe upon the people of Judah for their alcohol consumption. Out of six woes, two are for alcohol. And what was the material consequence of all of Judah's sin? It was captivity. Look at verse 13. Back to verse number 13. Therefore, my people have gone into captivity. Look at verse 24. Chapter 5, verse 24. Therefore. Look at verse 25. Therefore. So in chapter 5, the great prophet Isaiah stood before Judah and boldly declared that the, the, the people were living in sin and their unholiness warranted six woes to be issued upon them. And Isaiah prophetically warned them of the pending ruin that would befall them. We know that, of course, as the Babylonian captivity. But then comes chapter 6. And now Isaiah says, woe is me. Do you follow the the sequential progression here? Woe to Judah, woe to Judah, woe to you, woe to you, woe to you. Six times until he sees the throne room of God, the holiness of God. And he says, woe is me. How did he come to that? Verse number five, chapter six, verse five. For my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. And Isaiah saw God reigning and realized that he was ruined. For after witnessing the holiness of God, he realized that he too was part of the sin problem. And students, this evening I would say to us all that we could see the King, the Lord of hosts. If only we could get a clear picture of God, a right view of God, we would recognize our own state of ruin You see, I'm I'm sure that if we could see God like Isaiah saw God, we'd be impressed, right? But God isn't going to appear to us in a dream. He's not going to split open the sky so we can see his glory. 
How do we ever get to the place that Isaiah got in recognizing the holiness of God and the ruin of man? Let me, let me tell you two ways in, in which God has revealed himself to us. First, God has revealed himself to us in the general revelation of creation. And we know this, Psalm 19, verse number 1, the heavens declare the glory of God, the firmament showeth forth his handiwork. Here in Isaiah 6, verse number 3, the whole earth is full of his glory, and creation displays the glorious attributes of our great God, but we fail to see it. Turn with me quickly to Isaiah 42, I'm sorry, chapter 40, Isaiah 40. Go with me there, chapter 40, and let me show you this. Isaiah chapter 40, look at verse number 12. Isaiah 40, verse number 12. Who has meted out or measured the waters in the hollow of his hand, measured heaven with a span, calculated the dust of the earth in a measure, weighed the mountains and the scales and the hills in the balance? The, the answer is God. God has done that, but in fact, this verse, verse number 12, doesn't speak of God. It speaks of God's hand, just his hand. And verse 12 asks, who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? What's the hollow of your hand? If you take your hand like this and, and you kind of cup it with your palm, that's the hollow of your hand. And God says that he takes the waters, the waters of the earth, and he holds them in his hands like this. Scientists tell us that, that there are 340 quintillion gallons of water on this planet. You have hundreds, thousands, millions, billions, trillions, quadrillions, quintillions. And he holds them like that. Verse 12 says, he measured heaven with the span. The span is the term of measurement indicated by the distance between one's thumb and one's little finger there. God measures the universe like this. How big is the universe? With the naked eye, you can count just over 1,000 stars. 300 years after that was first done, the telescope was introduced and man counted 3,000 stars. Today, with high-tech instruments, scientists can count up to 100 billion stars and that is just in our own galaxy alone. They say there could be upwards of 100 billion galaxies. Okay, how much is a billion? If you were to count to 250 every minute for 24 hours a day, you count to 250 every minute for 24 hours a day, it would take you 1,000 years to count to a billion. That adds new meaning to our national debt, right? You understand just enormous, enormous numbers. But do you know what's more amazing than the number of stars? Is that God counts them and he knows them by name. They say to take the stars as far as distance is concerned. If you draw a dot representing the earth and then Nine inches away, you draw another dot representing the sun. Every inch would need to equal 10 million miles, for the sun is roughly 90 million miles away from the earth. 
So you have a, the Earth nine inches away, you have the Sun 10 million miles per inch. You take another dot and you put that dot more than 40 miles from here, perhaps most of the way to Asheville. Remember, every inch still represents 10 million miles. That's the distance to the closest star to us, Alpha Centauri. And students, God measures it with his hand like that. You know what that teaches me? God is bigger than you. God is bigger than me. And God is bigger than our problems. Verse 12 says that God calculated the dust of the earth in a, a measure. That, that means he measures the dust of the earth with, with a measure with his hand. It's how they used to weigh things in the Old Testament with a small hand scale. Scientists say that the earth weighs six sextrillion metric tons. And he holds it in his hand. We sing the song, he's got the whole world in his hands. Well, you know what? He does, in fact. And isn't it absurd to offer the God of the universe our advice instead of our submission? So the general revelation of creation teaches us about the person and the character of God, but also then the special revelation of God's word gives testimony to the person of, of God. It was in 2 Peter 1 that the apostle Peter recalled the day of Jesus' transfiguration. And he says he was an eyewitness of God's majesty. And there on that occasion it was Peter, James, and, and John who saw the glory of God. What an amazing experience. But you know what Peter says just a few verses later in 2 Peter 1? He said that he had something more sure than what he physically witnessed with his eyes. He had something more sure than what he experienced. He had the writings of the prophets. He had the written word of God. And so the scriptures give testimony to the person of God. And it's in these pages that we come to understand who he is. Go back with me to chapter 6. Isaiah chapter 6 and notice what takes place next, verse number five. So I said, woe is me, for I am undone because I'm a man of unclean lips. I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. Why? Because my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. I would give you number three. Isaiah was graced when he was humbled in repentance. And I think it's I think it's doubtful that Isaiah ever repented like this before, since he was a prophet. It was his job to tell the other people to repent. In fact, Isaiah even leveraged the holiness of God in calling other people to repentance. Let's go back to chapter 5 again. Notice this in chapter 5, verse number 16. But the Lord of hosts shall be exalted in judgment, and God who is holy shall be hallowed in righteousness. If you look to chapter 5, verse number 19. Um, and let the counsel of the Holy One of Israel draw near and come that we may know it. Verse 24 as well. The holiness of God there at the, at the end of verse 24. The difference now from chapter 5 to chapter 6 is that Isaiah has seen the holiness of God himself firsthand. And has come to realize that because of his own sin, he would necessarily be cut off from fellowship with God like all of his people in Judah. In fact, another insight if you... Turn your attention back to chapter 6, verse 1. The, the mention of King Uzziah. And the year that King Uzziah died. That's more than just a, a time stamp of 739 B.C. It's more than a chronological marker citing the year of Isaiah's vision. 
I believe Isaiah was making a comparative reference of his experience to the experience of Uzziah. Let me explain this, this background for you. King Uzziah was 16 years old when he became king of Judah. And he reigned for 52 years. He was generally a good king. He was very prosperous. However, in pride, Uzziah entered the temple of the Lord one day and he burned incense on the altar by himself. Of course, he had no right to do that, no right to approach God in that manner. That was reserved exclusively for the priests. And Uzziah approached God in an unworthy manner. Follow this now. Uzziah approached God in an unholy manner. And consequently, what happened on that occasion, the ground shook. Uzziah was struck with leprosy. He was driven from the temple. He had to be made to live apart, separate from all the other people until his death. Worse than that, the Bible says that Uzziah was cut off from the house of the Lord. Uzziah's relationship with God was ruined. You can read about it in 2 Chronicles chapter 26. So that story in part is why I believe that Isaiah now is terrified when he saw God's holiness. And he felt himself horrified, ruined in the same way that Uzziah. So he turned his preaching on himself. He cries, woe is me. And students, that, those are some of the, the best words that one can ever utter in the, the ear of God. Remember the tax collector in Luke 18, who he, he beat his breast and said, God, be merciful to us, merciful to me, a sinner. And here Isaiah humbles himself in repentance, and he experienced grace in this moment. How do I know that? Because James 4 says he gives more grace. God resists the proud. But he gives grace to the humble. And Isaiah was graced by God because of his brokenness and his humility. Verse number 6, chapter 6, verse number 6. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a live coal, which he had taken with the tongs from, off, from the altar. And he touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your iniquity is taken away. Your sin is purged. This is a great picture Symbolic picture of God's plan of salvation. First, the coal is taken off the altar. In other words, it was taken from a place of sacrifice. The altar was the place where a lamb was slain for the remission of sin. And then secondly, that coal was applied to Isaiah's lips, for he had sinned with his lips. It must have been painful, but effective in purging Isaiah's sin. Literally means atoned for. And all in all, this was a, a work of God. And in this, Isaiah, separated from a holy God because of his sin, could be reconciled together with God. Romans 5, verse number 10, perhaps you know it. When we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. Much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. Number 4. Isaiah was blessed when he experienced this reconciliation. Isaiah was blessed when he experienced this reconciliation. And, and why, do I, why do I say this? How do I know this? Because Psalm 32.1 says, Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Students, folks, I don't know your story. I don't know where you've been. I don't know what you've done. You have maybe skeletons in your closet. 
Perhaps you have scars from the regrets of your past. You've wandered far from God, perhaps in harbored and hidden sin. But I declare to you that you can be reconciled to God today and know the blessing of God when there is repentance and forgiveness of sin. Look at verse 8. Isaiah says, Also I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Number five, Isaiah was obedient when he was recommissioned. Isaiah was obedient when he was recommissioned. He answered at the end of verse number eight, Then I said, Here am I, send me. Isaiah willingly responded to God's call and he obeyed. Now, working backward in your outline, it's before you on the screen, some of you have taken notes. Working backward, Isaiah was not commissioned or recommissioned, that's number five, until he was reconciled, that's number four. Isaiah could not be reconciled, number four, until he repented, number three. He was not willing to repent, number three, until he had been ruined, number two. He did not know he was ruined, number one, until, number two, until he saw God on his throne reigning in holiness, number one. You may not know this, but Isaiah went on to become a spokesperson for the holiness of God. In fact, Isaiah calls God the Holy One 30 times in this book, more than any other writer in all the Bible. In fact, I want you to turn to chapter 57. Chapter 57 is as we conclude. Isaiah responded to God's call and said, Here am I, send me. And Isaiah then preached repentance into the face of a sinful Judah. Chapter 57, verse number 15. This is Isaiah's message. For thus says the high and lofty one who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place with him who is a contrite and humble spirit to receive the spirit of the humble, to revive the heart of the contrite ones. Remember the the, the necessary separation that God's holiness demands. Remember the separation that Uzziah suffered. Remember the reconciliation that Isaiah enjoyed. Look at chapter 57, verse number 18. I have seen his ways and will heal him. I also will lead him and restore comforts to him and to his mourners. I create the fruit of the lips. Peace, peace to him who is far off and to him who is near, says the Lord, and I will heal him. And folks, that was Isaiah's experience right down to the lips. Isaiah never forgot what he saw in the holiness of God. And he never stopped telling people that there is a way for unholy man to be reconciled to a holy God. This week I have made the case that the worship of God in missions is where we need to begin. But that worship is the worship of a holy God. 
It's the holiness of God in missions when we recognize that we are, we are apart, separated from a holy God because of our sin. And the holiness of God demands that we be reconciled. A heart for the harvest because we know that our sins have separated between us and our God. But the good news is that Jesus Christ can reconcile us to God having made peace through the blood of the cross. What a story to tell. What a message to take. Why should your neighbor, your coworker, your friend, why should the nations care about repenting and turning in faith, believing in the gospel? Because God is a holy God. And if we don't bow the knee now, someday we will, when every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory, to the worship of God the Father. Would you bow your heads with me just for a moment of, of meditation before I conclude with prayer? I want you to, in your mind's eye, think of the glory, the majesty, the holiness of God. As finite creatures, we can only imagine how great our God is. He is holy, holy, holy. God in heaven above, we bow our heads and our hearts before you, declaring holy, holy, holy are you. Lord, we recognize our own wretchedness, our sinfulness, our brokenness. We are fallen and depraved. But you have made peace through the blood of the cross of Jesus Christ, and we're thankful for that. God, I pray that you will inspire and motivate and, and enable and equip this generation of of young people before me to take the gospel to the ends of the earth to proclaim that God is holy and that unholy man may be right with him. For I pray this in Jesus' name.